We've been making our way through the fruit of the Spirit uh, found in Galatians 5, and this morning we come to the fruit of goodness. Last week we looked at the fruit of kindness, and when you begin to study the Scriptures, you see a striking correspondence between goodness and, and kindness. And if you've been studying along with Jerry Bridges' book, The Fruitful Life, you notice that he lumps those two together in his chapter. I chose differently, primarily because there's many Scriptures that talk about goodness, and in particular, I, I believe that it would be helpful for our church to look through this one separately, goodness. Goodness can be translated as generosity. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells a story of a vineyard owner who hires men to work his vineyard, and some work the entire day, and some come late in the day and they're put to work, even just for an hour or two. And when the day's done and wages are given out to the, to the workers, everyone gets the same even though some were there all day and some just came at the end. And the earlier workers noticed this and, and they complained to the owner that, that this wasn't fair. And the owner responds, am I not allowed to do what I choose, what, what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? That's in Matthew twenty fifteen. And, and the word that Jesus uses here for generosity is the same Greek word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 for good, goodness. And Jesus is essentially saying that good people don't always worry about what is strictly fair, but rather they, they err on the side of generosity and kindness. It wasn't the fault of these men that were hired at the end of the day that, that they only worked for a few hours, and the owner chooses then to show generosity and kindness and goodness by supplying what they needed to feed their family. He, he chooses to be good rather than fair. This is the definition of God's grace to us in salvation. It isn't fair. If it was fair, we would all receive death instead of grace. We also tend to use the term good to talk about people. We mean that they're good people. And what we mean by that is that they're good at that role. But that person goes beyond the strict limits of the role that is demanded of them. And they, then they're good people because they act with grace and generosity. And so what qualities do you see when you say that someone's a good person? You know, hey, he's a good guy or she's a good person. I believe one quality that we see almost always is that of the integrity of the person. There's an absence of any deception. The, the person seems sincere. A sincere person's heart is like a clear lake that you can see all the way to the bottom. What you see is what you get. There's no sham. There's no pretense with them. Their words and behavior on the outside matches not what goes on on the inside. Good people do what they do simply because it's the right thing to do. And goodness is close to what it means to be pure in heart. Goodness has this transparent quality to it. And most simply, you can depend on good people to be and to do what they say they will do. They, they will keep their word. They, they will do what is right simply because it's the right thing to do. And for us to understand goodness, we have to look at the standard, which is God. He is good. He's good all the time. There's never a moment where God is not good. And so if you follow an outline or want one this morning that's real basic, two points, God is good and the fruit of goodness. And so first, God is good. God is good. We see that throughout Scripture. That's who he is. It's a constant affirmation that we read in the Bible. First Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Psalm 25, 8, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 136, 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And so when the Bible says that God is good, it means that he is generous and trustworthy. He is sincere in all his ways towards the world and his people. God is sincere without any deception. There's no crookedness to him. He's a solid rock all the way down. And the goodness of God is, is, is the central theme in the scriptures. No matter what circumstances uh, are, are there or appear to be, God is good and God does good. God can overrule any evil. And we see this most clearly in the life of Joseph in in Genesis. God has the power to bring good results out of the evil that people intended to perpetrate. Biblical goodness is being communicated to do the right thing even when it costs or hurts us. Good people are those who resist the temptation, though, uh, to take an easy way out or out of a hard situation. When it's dangerous... Even when it's going to be costly, they, they do it anyways. They, they persevere in doing what they know to be right, no matter the consequences that come. Good people are courageous people, and sometimes they pay a heavy price for their integrity. Another psalm that I came across this week was Psalm 15. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, who does not take a bribe against the innocent. He does these things shall never be moved. Did you hear the line there about keeping the promise? The ESV said, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. It's better translated, who keeps an oath even when it hurts. He keeps an oath even when it hurts. The good man or woman resists the temptation to find some way out of keeping their promise or speaking truth or doing the honest and and right thing. Nearly always there's some alternative that's an option that's there for us to get out of a commitment. But the good choice is the right choice, even when it hurts. You want an example for this? Just open the New Testament and look at Jesus. He refused to deviate from what he knew to be the right and good thing to do. You think of the number of times Jesus was offered an alternative. He was given many times in his ministry, an easy way out of the difficulty that he was facing, the hard situation that he was brought to, possibly to to, to escape out of that. And how many times Jesus was offered this different way, even a different way from the cross. Early on in his ministry, Satan offered him three options, popularity, death-defying stunts, political power. But Jesus resisted those temptations and chose the path of a suffering servant. Simon Peter offered him a way out of the idea of suffering and and crucifixion, but Jesus rebukes him. Jesus' own mother and brothers find find a way to offer him a different way, to, to give up this embarrassing public ministry and the risky lifestyle, but Jesus rebukes them also. 
And even in the garden, Jesus has shown what, what's, what must happen on the cross, taking our sin upon himself, yet he chooses to do the Father's will. Even when he's arrested, he could have called down 10,000 angels to come and free him. And even when he stood in that, in that trial under Pilate, he's offered a way out, and yet Jesus refuses. In all these ways, Jesus demonstrates for us what goodness looks like. His sincerity and determination to do the hard thing, to do what, what was right in obedience to the Father, even to death. And so the goodness of God is seen in the goodness of Jesus most clearly, and that's, that's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. So second, the fruit of goodness. Goodness in the life of a Christian comes from the life of God within us. The only way goodness comes to us is through a heart that is submitted to God. So goodness is, is a heart thing. It comes from the inside. And what we are on the, on the outside is the fruit of what happens on the inside. And Jesus makes this point clear in Luke 6, 43-45. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we do, what we say, shows who we are deep down inside. What you say with your mouth didn't just come, didn't just pop out. It was in your heart before it came out of your mouth. What you did didn't just happen. No, it found its beginning inside of you. How we live on the outside shows how we are on the inside. If, if Christ, through the Holy Spirit, takes up residence inside of you, we will begin to show more and more of the goodness of God. It won't be perfect, but there should be evidence. Because there's a deep well of goodness inside of Christians because we have God living inside of us. His goodness flows from himself through us and begin to grow more and more in goodness, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And the longer we live with God, the more we become good doers. And so we come to the passage here this morning, and I did change it. You, you got a, uh, if you got the email a few weeks ago, you had a different passage, but we're going to go to Titus chapter 3. So if you do have a Bible, uh, we will put the scriptures on the screen as we go through. But Titus chapter 3, 1 through 8, and when we get to verse 8, you're going to see how goodness relates to all this. But I, I found this to be a very applicable passage for us in, in what's happening today. In the midst of this pandemic, and that, the fact that we're thrusted into a, a life that frankly is not convenient or conducive. And so Paul, Paul is writing this letter to Pastor Titus. And he says in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So I want to stop right there. God, first, God saved us in order that we would do good works on earth. Ephesians 2 reminds us of the same thing, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And friends, good works never save, but good works do flow from those who are saved. And the order is vitally important here, friends. We are to live distinct lives from those that live around us. 
And it's because of what God has done inside of us that good works flow. Remember what Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And so from that, our, our lives are to be billboards of God's grace and mercy in our life. Those people are, are watching us. They're observing us. And one of the good works that Titus says for us here right at the beginning is to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. And so Paul is writing this to Pastor Titus, and he's reminding He says, remind God's people of their responsibilities in this world. To remind here means to call to mind what is already known. Friends, we are Christians and we are to submit. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 21, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Paul writes in Romans 13, 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as set by him to punish those who do evil, and to the praise to those who do good. So in these verses, Christians should not be insurgents or rebels. We do not subvert the government or disobey the government unless it brings us into direct conflict with the commandments of God. And even then, our disobedience is passive and not active. We will then willingly accept the consequences for our actions. But ultimately, friends, our submission to authorities in our lives is really submission to and trust in God. And so I ask, are you submitting to the government, friends? I ask honestly and pastorally and gently, are you displaying a heart of submission to those that are placed above us, over us? I'm not asking if you agree with the government. I'm asking, are you submitting? Submission here means that we are displaying meekness and humility, a willingness to place ourselves under their leadership and authority. Are you submitting? And don't be fooled. It isn't like Paul and the other apostles simply didn't have any hard issues or difficulties with authorities and abuses of authority. This was written during the time of Caesars and occupational armies and and coliseums who were filled with people to watch Christians be torn to shreds. See, Edgewood Bible Church is submitting to the Washington state government simply because God placed them there and they're seeking to protect life. And we will continue to submit to the government unless there's a reasonableness to not do so that infringes on our our duties of obedience to God. And one example, maybe you're asking this, at what point would we not? Well, if the government allows sporting events and concerts or political conventions to meet and it forbids churches from meeting, if the government in some way singles out churches, then, possibly then, our church may have a biblical warrant to disobey. But until then, we submit, not just to the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Remember, as a church family, we have a witness to those that surround us. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, our submission allows us to be ready for every good work that God has planned for us. And the first and foremost is the reputation of the gospel. See, the gospel will not progress in our area if God's people only honor and submit to authority that they find agreeable to their stance. And we must, as Christians, submit to the authority God places in our lives, even if that authority rebukes us. See, if Christians routinely operate in the mode of respecting only the authorities that they agree with, or that don't bring trouble to their lives, then the minister of the gospel, who is placed in a church as a pastor and elder to teach and to lead the church, will soon have no authority. See, your submission to authority outside of the church directly affects your ability to submit to the authority inside of the church. And if the people of God will not honor the authority outside of the church, the word of God will have no credibility for those that are outside of the family of God. Ultimately, a church community that does not submit to the governing authority undermines the authority of the word of God for the church and for the lost. And we will not be ready for every good work if we're defiant and prideful. So Paul says here we need to be ready for these works. Every good work, every indicates the command is comprehensive. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the house of the faith. We are to look for ways to help others, to do good to them and for them. This is looking for opportunities to serve and to give. And then Paul says back in Titus 3, verse 2, that we should speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And doing good means we don't speak ill of others. Slandering them, we avoid fights. See, our words shouldn't be there to stir up sh- strife or ill will or trouble. Instead, we're to be gentle. We're going to cover that in a few weeks here at the Fruit of the Spirit. We're to be peaceable and uncontentious and forbearing and showing consideration to others. This is what goodness looks like for the Christian, either in person or online. And then Paul takes it on uh, for us a much-needed stroll down memory lane. He says in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Charles Spurgeon, talking about this verse, reminds us, he says, Do not let me talk about these things this morning while you listen to me without feeling. I want you to be turning over the pages of your old life and joining with Paul and the rest of us in our sad confession of a former pleasure in evil. Friends, do you remember yourself before salvation? See, Paul says here, this is you in verse 3. This was me. For we ourselves. See, Paul is including himself in this indictment. We were all once foolish, he says. We were deceived. We were ignorant. We, were, we had no spiritual understanding. Very simply, sin makes you stupid. We were disobedient. And sin simply disobeys God. Our natural bent was to display and to seek our own way. We're self-centered, self-motivated, and self-deceived rebels who are against God. 
and we were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. We're, we're in bondage to sin, he says. We're actually jailed to sin. Lust and pleasure controlled us. And he says we were passing our days in malice and, and envy. One commentator, Hebert, writes of malice and says, we lived with an evil attitude of mind which manifests itself in ill will and desire to injure. And it says we also lived in envy. John MacArthur writes of this verse, envy is a sin that carries its own reward. It, it guarantees its own frustration and disappointment. An envious person cannot be satisfied with what he has and will always crave for more. And last, Paul says that we were hated by others and hating one another. Hateful was our, our nature, our attitude, our natural outgrowth of envy. And so this is a picture of who we were, but not of who we are now. And you can look back, friends, and think back of once what it was like before you were saved. But then the gospel changed everything. Amen? I love these verses in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of our generation and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. When God's goodness comes, his loving kindness, friends, everything changes. Everything we were in the dark, plunging downward, foolishly look, living and, and looking of our own way, stumbling through the darkness, going deeper and deeper and darker down in our own paths. When God bursts on the scene, he saves us. Friends, people don't look for God. God goes after people. People are not laboring to find him. The sheep are never seeking the shepherd, but going astray, the scriptures say. And the shepherd goes after them. And our gracious Lord came uncalled and unsought, purely out of grace. And Paul says he saved us. Not because of works. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I want to be clear this morning, friends. Salvation cannot be earned by us. Regeneration is not something that you can work to accomplish. Even on your best day, you don't have anything to give to God except filthy rags. You cannot work your way into heaven. And if you've heard or believed before that, that there's something you can do to earn your way to heaven, you've been misled. God is the only one who can redeem. He is the only one who can deliver you from sin and slavery. And why does he do this? Paul says because of his own mercy, pure grace from our good God. And how does he do this? He does it through the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration consists of removing the filth and then by renewing us and brought us in by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration makes us clean through new birth. We are made new by God. And he says in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To be justified means to be declared righteous. Christ's righteousness is imputed to the Christian. And now we stand before God just as if we'd never sinned. Just as if we've obeyed God perfectly. All this comes to the believer because of God's grace. And we're declared justified. God's goodness and kindness moved him to save us. 
His love moved him to save us. His mercy moved him to save us. His grace moved him to save us. Friends, it's all God. And now, having saved us, he gets there. Verse 8, what are we called to do? He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want, I want you to insist on these things so that you who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, the new birth results in new life, and old works of the flesh replaced by new works of the Spirit. And, and once we have experienced God's salvation, we're to respond by living lives that are characterized by goodness. These things, he says, these things that are excellent and profitable for people. And see, Paul has actually a lot of things to say about doing good. He, he makes a point of it in almost every letter that he writes. In Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and all times, you may abound in every good work. In Galatians 6, 9 and 10, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. And in Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In 2 Thessalonians 3.13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And earlier in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And then in verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And your teaching show integrity and dignity. See, Paul puts such a strong emphasis on Christians being and doing good work in this life. And Why? Why is goodness an essential part of the fruit of the Spirit? Why is it such a big deal? Because Paul says earlier in Titus 3, 4 and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works we've done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. See, goodness reflects the nature and truth of the gospel. When Paul says in Romans 12, 21, do not... Be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's echoing exactly what God did on the cross. For on the cross, the goodness of God overcame all evil and satanic evil in creation by bearing it on himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The cross is the ultimate expression of the goodness of God. And the resurrection proved that God accepted his death for our sins. See, goodness overcomes evil. That's the ultimate story of the whole Bible. And that's the heart of the gospel, friends. And if you're listening this morning, you've never turned to faith and to trust in Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin of trusting yourself and turn to Jesus Christ. He is faithful, friends. He is good and he will save you. And that's our hope for the future. And so when we respond to evil in this world with good, we're not only bearing supernatural fruit of the Spirit living inside of us, we're also living in the power of the cross and the resurrection. And so we look forward to that final victory of God's goodness over all evil and all the universe. You know, coming back here as we end to the parable that I shared at the beginning 
this morning. So, and, I, and I'm thinking through this and still chewing on it. Why, why were those workers who were paid for a full day of work, that they, they were promised this and they were given to it, why were they so upset? And furthermore, who spends the whole day waiting to be hired and doesn't find success to the end of the day? You know, in Jesus' time, I believe these would be the, the weak people, the infirm, the, the disabled. Maybe they're elderly. And other targets of discrimination, such as criminals or anyone with a bad reputation, people that maybe just look different. And yet, in this story, in this parable, the landowner brings them in. He allows them to work even just for a, an hour or two, and then pays them a full day's wage. And this illustrates the excessive propensity of God to be good. And it violates our instincts about fairness, which chaffs those earlier workers. It isn't that, they, that the latecomers got paid. No, by, by dealing generously with a group of people that no other manager in town considered worth the trouble of hiring, the, the landowner in this situation makes clear declaration about their value and their worth. And that's the issue. See, the landowner's undue goodness thus denies the full-day laborer's bonus that they think that they can claim. A sense of privilege, of superiority. See, what does it say? What are they thinking? What does it say about their value now? Shockingly, this whole story is essentially about them. What they think they're deserving. And Jesus is essentially saying that good people don't always worry about what is strictly fair. But rather, they look to err on the side of generosity and kindness. Good people aren't always looking out for themselves only. Good people look out for others. They want to serve people. They tend to lift people up. Good people aren't always looking for fairness because as Christians we know that what is fair is hell. That's fairness, and we don't like that fairness. Good people put others ahead of themselves. We will never do enough good to earn salvation, friends. But we do good to show that God has already brought salvation to us and he's already transformed us into his likeness. And when we do good, friends, we are showcasing the gospel to a watching world. And so I pray that God's spirit can work mightily in our hearts, that it would work mightily in your heart and your family's life, but even more that would work in the hearts of the lives of our church family. That we would bear f the fruit of goodness in all that we do and say for his, our, for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. Each morning we wake to find that you have continued to be good to us. And seasons change and pressures mount and our bodies fail and yet we can safely say that you have always been good to us. And we can confidently say this morning that you are worthy of our praise and service. And yet, Father, because of your goodness to us, primarily seen in salvation, we're now called to be and to do good to others that live around us. And God, we, we say that we need your help. And it's true. 
Help us to to love you by doing good to others. Help us to love your word more than the news or Facebook. Help us to earnestly seek to obey you and your word. Help us to, to live out the fruit of the Spirit for your honor and glory alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.